Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. The English language does not possess adequate words to express the depth of my disappointment that tonight we are going to meet Haman and nobody brought noisemakers. Steve's here. Well, he's here. <laughs> so when we meet Haman, I expect you all to boo loudly. Because that is the way every year at the Feast of Purim. That's usually a two-day feast, and both days the entire book of Esther is read in the tabernacles, in the temples, and, and in the synagogues, and they, they boo him because he was trying to eradicate the Jews. So feel free when his name comes up to boo mightily since you didn't bring noisemakers. Let's try it just a moment. Let's say, for instance, I said the name Micah. Would you boo? No, no. <laughs> Let's say, for instance, I said, uh, you know, the name Bob or Frank or whatever he's being called this week. Oh, oh, good. Noisemakers on your phone. Very nice. Very nice. But what if I said the name Haman? <laughs> so here's what we know so far. Esther has been raised by her cousin, Mordecai, and the king, Ahasuerus, has decided that since his queen Vashti didn't come when he commanded her to come, that she could no longer be queen. So all of the attractive women in his kingdom, which is a very large, expansive kingdom, the attractive women were adorned, dressed up, and brought to him to be auditioned by him to see if he could find a new queen. And wouldn't you just know that somehow providentially he decided that Esther was going to be the new queen. Esther found favor in his sight the same way that she had found favor in the sight of the eunuchs who were there to protect the women and prepare them to be brought before the king. So there was something about Esther that was very favorable and that people reacted very positively to. And so she became queen, and then something really important happened. We're going to start at the end of chapter 2, verse 21. We're going to start today right where we left off last week by reciting again exactly what happened between Mordecai and the king, because this is a key kind of turning point that the whole rest of this story is based on. So I want it to be firmly planted in your minds, in your heads. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, they had become angry and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. In other words, they intended to kill him. They planned to lay a plot where they would kill the king. But the plot became known to Mordecai. And he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. What that means is she said, I know that this is good information because Mordecai passed it on to me. And in so doing, Mordecai is directly responsible for saving the king's life. And something really good should be done for Mordecai for having done that for having exposed that plot. But for whatever reason, whether it was just a snafu of some part or whether it was just bureaucratic details that just got swept under the rug, for whatever reason, Mordecai was just never honored in any way for saving the life of the king. Providentially, however, that is exactly what God intended. He intended not only that Mordecai would save the king, but that the desire to honor Mordecai 
wouldn't happen yet. Hold on to that because we probably won't see it tonight, but as early as next week we might get to it because the king one night is not going to be able to sleep. And he's going to decide to have the chronicles of the king read to himself. He wants to hear stories about him. Don't bring me Little Red Riding Hood. I don't want to hear any Aesop's fables. I want to, what have I done lately? And so the chronicles of the king are read for him, and this story comes up. And he's going to ask, well, what was done for Mordecai when he saved my life? And they're going to check, they're going to check the chronicles, and they're going to come back and say, nothing, nothing was ever done for him. And so he decides, well, then something significant should be done for him, and he asks, Haman, and he asks Haman what should be done. Haman thinks, Haman thinks that this is all about him. So he, <laughs> and so he's the one who designs the honor that Mordecai ends up getting while that very same Haman is busy trying to kill Mordecai and all his relatives. So Haman is going to end up having to accomplish the honor of the very guy he's trying to kill. So this is all just God's providence working in the background. So you need to know this story that two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai. He told Queen Esther and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found out to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. And that was all written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. That's the very thing he's going to read much later on to find out that nothing was done for Mordecai. That takes us to chapter 3. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. You're right on it the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. And he, the king, advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. <laughs> For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Verse 3 tells us why. Then the king's servants who were at the gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? And now it was that when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them, they went and told Haman, to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. Here's the reason, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So the reason that Mordecai would not bow down to Haman was that he was a Jew. And this is very, very basic Jewish principle right from the very beginning. As soon as God said, you will have no other gods before me. And when he said, you're not going to make any graven image or any idol he said the reason not to do that was that you would bow down, that you would prostrate yourself before them, that you would worship that. Very much like Daniel when he was in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue of gold and set up the, the idol and said that everybody had to bow down to it. Whenever you hear the trumpet sounds and the bagpipes play and everything, then you have to bow down to this idol. And Daniel and his friends refused to do it. Well, same thing here. A thoroughgoing Jew understood the Shema. The Shema says, the Lord our God, he is one God. And because there is only one God, the one who said, I am, which is his way of designating that all the other gods of Egypt are not, the only God who actually is, who actually exists, demands that his people never bow down to anyone else. And so since that is such a basic tenet of Judaism, 
Mordecai's reason, his rationale for not bowing down to Haman, is that he is a Jew. Therefore, he's not going to bow down. So the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, which means they came to him every day saying, you got to bow down. You have to bow down. He would not listen to them. So they told Haman to see whether, I'm sorry, it just became very funny, uh, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So Haman took this news very well. He was very happy with the idea that somebody would refuse to bow down to him. Just you can get a sense of this guy's enormous ego by the fact that he insists that people bow and scrape in front of him. So when he saw that Mordecai neither bowed down or paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. He was angry that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. Now think about it for just a moment. I used to have friends. This, this is an odd reference, but it's going to tie in in a moment. When I lived in Los Angeles, I had a lot of friends who were comedians. It's what they did for a living. And they used to say they loved when the whole crowd was with them and everybody's laughing at every joke, but they to the person would say to me, that it would wreck their night if there was any one person not laughing. You know, you get that one guy sitting in the front row with his arms crossed like, you're not going to make me laugh. Or the musician who's up there playing and performing and everybody's really into it, but you've got the one guy sitting there who's clearly bored, who doesn't want to be there. Well, you can't help but focus on him. My comedian friends used to say, it became a goal. I had to make that guy laugh. I didn't care if 300 other people were laughing hysterically. I had to make that guy laugh. Well, it's kind of what happened here with Haman. <laughs> because here he has everybody bowing down to him. Here he has everybody doing obeisance to him. But there's that one guy. There's that one guy who won't bow and it makes me crazy. And so I hate him. So I want to kill him. In fact, I want to kill him and everybody like him. And the horse he rode in on. I want to kill everybody. I'm so upset. Everybody who's a Jew, because he said, I'm a Jew. That's why I can't bow down. Well, then all the Jews have to be exterminated because nobody doesn't bow down to me. So, verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him who the people of Mordecai was, that they were all Jews. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy Haman. <laughs> <laughs> sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, as I've stressed and really tried to point out last week, the kingdom of Ahasuerus is huge in Africa and India and the Middle East and stretching out east from there, just an enormous kingdom. And they want all the Jews in the kingdom, no matter where they are, exterminated. So here's what he did. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the month of Nisan, that is a Jewish reckoning. So we are being told by the writer of the book of Esther that the time is being counted according to Jewish reckoning. In that first month, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, that tells you now that Esther has been queen for four years. So in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was thrown before Haman 
from day to day and from month to month until the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. Okay, it can be a little confusing. So let me clear up a couple of things. First off, the Chaldee word that has to do with throwing lots, casting lots, is the word per. If you're talking about more than one lot, then the I am on the end of Hebrew words pluralizes it. The same way that you may talk about cherub. Cherub is an angel. Cherubim, many angels. Plural angels. So, per is throwing a lot. Perim would be throwing lots, plural lots. This is important because by the end of the book you're going to see that the throwing of lots was something that the Jews ended up celebrating because God, who is providentially protecting them, made sure the way that the lots fell. Well, this is exactly what Proverbs tells us. It's one of my favorite verses to show the absolute sovereignty of God. That the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Now, casting a lot into a lap is something that we would consider chance, something that we would consider happenstance, luck of the draw, that kind of thing. Everything in Las Vegas is supposedly based on chance and the casting of dice and the throwing of things that are completely random. But the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, the smartest man who ever lived, takes the time to say, well, even the casting of lots, even the throwing of dice, even the tossing down of things, the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So whatever number pops up, that's what God wanted. Whatever date pops up, whatever happens in the casting of lots, that God is in complete control of it. Otherwise, you would have to say that there is randomness in God's universe and that there are some things that occur that God didn't mean to or doesn't have control of and that God is not utterly sovereign. Well, the uh, Persians were a very superstitious people. And they believed very heavily in fate. Do you know the difference between fate and providence? Fate is the idea that there is an unseen force that is driving all of human history inexorably forward. And whatever happens, that's what fate meant to happen. But fate is never defined as having a personality as being an actual entity, an actual character. We say that God is the driving force behind all human history and that he is not only driving human life and earthly life forward, but he's doing it on purpose because he has a predetermined end that he is driving toward. So life is not purposeless. There is a purpose to the things that God is doing, whereas the idea of fate is that it's just driving things forward but doesn't have a purpose, doesn't have a design beyond just causing things to happen. Now, that's kind of hard to get a hold of. I would contend, me personally, that folks who believe in Darwinistic evolution who use the phrase natural selection, have just taken the idea of fate and given it a new name and given it the name natural selection because they say that natural selection is the thing that is driving everything forward and the reason that some one-celled being climbed up out of the primordial ooze and then became giraffes and you is because natural selection decided all these things. So there is a concept in human life that allows people to philosophically take the mind of God out of the equation, but still have to concede that there is something driving life. And that is the idea of fate. The uh, Greeks were so into this that they actually had three goddesses that they called the three fates. And they believe that all human life was driven by these three fates. 
and that life was like a thread was the way they said it, you know, and as you work your way down the thread has a definite beginning and a definite end, and along the way, the reason that you keep on that path, on that thread of your particular life is because the fates have decided it. So you'll hear people sometimes say, well, that just happened because, oh, that's fate. But usually they'll talk about blind fate because fate doesn't have a personality, a mind, a plan, a decision that we can actually delve into the way we can see the mind of God at work or the providence of God at work or the way that God displays his absolute sovereignty by displaying his providence in people's lives. Fate is just that thing that is behind everything that just drives life forward. Does that make sense? Okay, so believing so deeply in fate, Haman decided that he had to pick a date when the Jews were going to be destroyed. And so the way he decided to pick that date and keep his own hands clean was to leave it up to fate. So he cast lots. And the first lot that he cast decided what month the Jews were going to be destroyed. The next lot that he cast was to decide what day the Jews were going to be destroyed. Now, notice that this is all happening in the first month, in the month of Nisan. The pur, the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month. So, in other words, to determine what day and what month he was actually going to lay out the decree that everybody who lived within the realm of Persian rule could kill all the Jews and plunder all their stuff on that day. So now watch God providentially override fate because it was decided that it would happen on the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. So God made sure there was at least a year between the decree of Haman Boo. Oh, <laughs> between the decree of Haman boo, boo <laughs> and the actual implementation of his plan and over the course of that time over the course of that year that was going to allow this decree is going to allow the absolute destruction the killing the mayhem of all the Jews in the kingdom and the plundering of all their stuff, but God puts it off a year, and during that year, God turns it all completely upside down so that the Jews end up ruling. Isn't that interesting? Fate isn't God. God providentially overrules fate. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Notice that he doesn't mention, it's the Jews specifically, just trust me, I know this, there's a group of people in your kingdom and they're going to cause a great deal of problem for you. They're going to cause all kinds of dissension for you because they have their own laws. They don't follow your rules. And remember that we read last week that there were things written down in the books because these are the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And once these things are written down, there's no way to change them. So there's a very definite law of the Medes and the Persians. And he's saying there's these people who don't care about your laws. They have their own laws. So verse 9, if it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And then just to put the little cherry on top, Haman, boo, who happens to be a very, very rich man, says, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those people who carry on the king's business so that you can put all that money into the king's treasuries. I will make you even richer than you already are. He's talking about millions and millions of dollars in wealth. He says, I'll put that into the treasuries if you'll just let me go ahead and kill all those people 
which is good for you. It's just good for you if I protect the kingdom and kill those people, and it's going to make you rich. How can the king say no? Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. The reason that... <laughs> The reason that's important is because the signet ring was a, a very unique ring that had the symbol, the signet, of the king on it. And whenever letters or decrees were written from the king, they would pour wax onto the letter, and then that ring was stamped into the wax so that they could ship those decrees anywhere in the kingdom, and they could tell that it really was right from the king. There couldn't be any forgeries because it actually had the king's signet right down into the wax that sealed the letter. And so what does the king do? He takes off his signet ring, gives it to Haman, and <laughs> once he gives it to Haman, Haman gets to make up his own laws. He gets to make up his own rules and then send those rules to the whole kingdom with the king's signet on it. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Several times from now on in this book, when you see the name Haman, he will be referred to as the enemy of the Jews. Because they really want you to get that idea. So the king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also, to do with them as you please. In other words, the king said, Well, that's such a good idea then I'm not even going to take the silver. You keep the silver, but those people, they're in your hands. You do whatever you got to do. So this is what happened. Verse 12. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. So this is all happening during the, the very first month, the month of Nisan. And so it's going to take a year to get the decree out to everybody in the kingdom, everywhere, so that everybody knows that on that day, in the month of Adar, they can, king all, they can kill all the Jews, and they can plunder all their stuff. So the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps and to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of all the people, each province according to its script. In other words, there was a script in the specific languages sent out to every different area, every different prince, every different kingdom that was underneath King Ahasuerus. So each people according to their own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and it was sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. Did it really take three words to say that? I mean, it was bad enough that it was just kill. Just kill all the Jews. But no, they want to wipe them out. To destroy, to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. So there's a specific day when you're suddenly allowed by law to kill and destroy all the Jews you know. On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. So whatever your neighbor has, if he's a Jew, you're just watching the calendar. You're just waiting for that day. Verse 14, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Because you got to figure, in Susa, there's lots of Jews, and all of a sudden there's an edict from the king who's been good to us. 
Everything's been fine. We're getting along okay. And now there's an edict from the king saying that in the month of Adar, we can all be, men and women, boys and girls, we can all be destroyed, utterly annihilated, killed off, and that they can plunder all our stuff and they can take our homes and they can... Why? Why would this be happening? So there's massive confusion in the city of Susa, in the capital. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. As you would... That tearing of clothes is a sign of grief. It is a sign of grieving before God, calling out to God in sackcloth and ashes, in humility. Usually when the Jews would put on sackcloth and ashes, sackcloth, very, very itchy. Get yourself some burlap and make yourself a shirt out of it and put it on and you'll have some idea what this means. He put on clothing, put on a robe that was made of sackcloth so that it would make him terribly, terribly uncomfortable. And the Jews would lay down in the road and throw dust and rocks over their heads as a sign of their grief and their remorse. So he went out into the midst of the city and he wailed loudly and bitterly. And he went as far as the king's gate for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in each and every province where the command and the decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him but he did not accept them you got to know that if these are the clothes that the queen has access to they had to be good clothes and she was saying here at least put on a happier face and he refused to do it now this is going to cause some great deal of conflict because we're talking about the queen of the greatest empire in the Middle East at this moment. She is among the Jews who are going to be destroyed at the end of the year. But the king doesn't know she's a Jew. She hasn't told the king she's a Jew. But if Haman manages to implement his plan, her own life has to be taken from her and her house can be completely ransacked. That's the rule. And because it's a rule of the Medes and the Persians, it has to be followed. So this is going to cause a big political conflict for the king once he finds out that his queen is Jewish. And in fact, he loves her so much that when she comes before him, the first thing he says to her after holding out the golden scepter to accept her presence, first thing he says to her is, tell me what you want. I'll give you half my kingdom. Just that's, that's how much he loved this woman. So now she's found out about it, and she's writhing in great anguish. Verse 5 says, Then Esther summoned Hattach from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, And ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hattach went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. So whether the king took it or not, Mordecai is demonstrating this is how much this man hates us. He hates us with a vicious hatred. Yeah. My footnote says the amount of money was 750,000 pounds of silver. 750,000 pounds of silver. 
Yeah, just a little gift. It's hard to believe the king would say, yeah, keep it. <laughs> yeah, that had to be a rich king. Yeah. Huh? He also, verse 8, he also gave him, gave it to Hattach, gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor to plead with him for her people. Now you get some sense of Mordecai's frame of mind. Mordecai is starting to understand that in the good providence of God, we have a queen who has access to the king's chamber. She is one of us. And what if God just providentially put her in that place at this particular moment in order to make sure that this particular crime doesn't happen? What if the Jews don't get wiped out because God providentially has a queen already ruling in the very seat of power in the capital of Susa? And so Hattach, verse 9, came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hattach and ordered him to reply to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes into the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law that that person be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. So it's been a month since I've seen the king and he has a law. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. He has a rule. If you come uninvited into the king's presence, there's one law, dead. That's the law. So she gets the command from Mordecai, go to the king and beg for the lives of your people. She says, go tell Mordecai, I can't. If I go in and he's not expecting or not in a good mood, you know how kings can be, dead. He has a rule, a hard and fast rule that you can't come before him uninvited. So they related Esther's words to Mordecai. Now this is the verse that is kind of the root of the whole book of Esther. Whenever anybody thinks of Esther, they think of this line, this, this idea, this concept that maybe God has brought you to this place at this time because this in his providence determined that you were going to be. Maybe you were brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai says to her, the NASB says, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Notice Mordecai's faith. We're the people of God. So if you don't do it, if you don't go to the king, if you don't go plead the cause, God's still going to deliver us somehow. But maybe God is delivering us through you. Maybe that's why you're queen. Maybe that's why God in his divine providence brought together the best, the brightest, the most beautiful. Well, I don't know about brightest, but the most beautiful of all the virgins in the entire kingdom and paraded them before the king and the king found favor with you? Why? Why would he do that? Well, maybe that's just the providence of God because God knew this was coming and God placed you there on purpose for such a time as this. And don't think, if you don't say anything, that you're going to get by with it just because you're in the palace. The rule will also apply to you, to you and your father's house. They're all going to perish and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. I think that was the catchphrase for the Esther movie once upon a time, for such a time as this. 
But that phrase is absolutely abundant with the providence of God. And I think we can apply it, and I think it's worth applying to all of our lives. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever God is doing with you right now, you need to know that the providence of God has brought you to this point. And that that is his divine will for you, his divine plan for you, because he is still doing something in and through you. He is still working out something for his own glory, for your good, for the building up of your faith. He is doing it for your eternal good and your eternal education. He has brought you to this point at this moment for exactly what he intends to do in you. And that's what providence is. Providence is knowing, this is a phrase that I love and have used many, many times, but it's knowing that God is too holy not to do that which brings him the greatest glory, and he loves you too much not to do that which is for your greatest good. And if you remember that, even when you're going through the times of trouble and the time of testing and the time of difficulty, you can get through it knowing full well that God didn't abandon you. God is taking you through it for a purpose. And when I understood that, when I finally got a hold of that idea, that concept, then the suffering of this life, the difficulties of this life suddenly kind of made sense. Because if, if it doesn't, if providence doesn't work, if everything, including the throwing of lots, is not in the hand of God, then that means that there can be some suffering in this life that just doesn't have any purpose. There's no reason for it. And what you said, that was profound, and it falls on deaf ears until it happens to you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we believe it wholeheartedly. Yeah. (laughs) You need to. I can remember being up in Lexington one time, and I had said... um, into every life, you know, there, there's trouble. Trouble's coming. Trouble is, trouble is part of the package when you get your I'm a human card. Uh, trouble is just part of the package. And there was one young man sitting pretty close to me, just like I was saying. The whole crowd was with me. Okay, there's that one guy. And he was just smiling, and he said, haven't had any trouble so far. And I said, live a little longer. Just wait, because the trouble's coming. It comes into every life because the trouble is part of the package. And that means if God is absolutely sovereign and if God is working all things providentially after his own will, then that means that the suffering and the struggles have purpose. And if they have purpose, then they are going to accomplish something. And if they are going to accomplish something, then they're all part of God's plan for your life. And he will give you the strength to endure it. He'll take you through it and he'll bring you out the other side. And that's what Mordecai seems to be saying. He says, if you don't go talk to the king, don't think that you're not going to be among those that perish, you and your father's house. But God is going to deliver us some other way. I'm confident God is going to deliver us. God is somehow going to do it. I don't know how. And if you don't do it, then it's not going to be through you. But who knows? Maybe God brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this. What were you going to say? If it doesn't have a purpose, that makes God cruel. And I don't think he's cruel. Makes God capricious. Makes God just think, watch this, and throw a bunch of terrible stuff on you for absolutely no good reason. Who needs a God like that? And yet, that is exactly the way far too many churches define God. And they will also tell you, as long as we're on the subject, they'll also tell you, in order to save God's reputation, they'll tell you, well, God is in charge of the good stuff. When good stuff happens in your life, that's God. But when bad stuff happens in your life, that's the devil. Like God and the devil are on equal footing... And, you know, the devil manages to get into your good life, no matter what God has done for you, no matter how much God has protected you, the devil manages to get in there and mess up the plan of God. No matter how much good God has designed for you, the devil can upend the whole thing. Have you ever heard the, uh, there is a theory of salvation out there that says that God gets a vote and the devil gets a vote and then you cast the deciding vote. 
are you going to vote for God or are you going to vote for the devil? But the Bible doesn't say anything like that. The Bible says the voting already happened. And the only person who voted was God. And he elected. And he elected certain people and that was the end of it. He elected those that he elected. He did all the choosing. He did all the deciding. And you don't find anywhere in the Bible where God and the devil are on equal footing. Instead, what you find is God continually telling the devil what he can and cannot do. And because God is in charge of the devil, he utilizes the devil sometimes as the means through which he brings about trouble in your life, but he's still in charge of it. The same way he's in charge of you and the same way he's in charge of the devil. So, let's finish up. The night is waning here. So who knows whether you've been brought into royalty, into the palace for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai and say, go assemble all the Jews who were found in Susa and fast for me and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I And my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus, I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I die, I die. Wow. If I perish, I perish. So she sees that there's such a cause. And the providence of God is working, according to Mordecai, for the Jews, positively for the Jews. He's on the side of the Jews. Therefore, one way or another, he's going to deliver us from this horrible decree. And perhaps he's going to do it through you. And if he's going to do it through you, who can stop you? Who can lay anything to your charge? Who can withstand the plan of God? If God is using you as the means to accomplish the salvation of all the Jews in the entire kingdom, then when you walk in there, the king is going to allow it. Even though it's the law, even though it's the rule. So she ends up saying, okay, all right, I get I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a stand for God. And if I die, I die. That's all that happens. So next week we will start in chapter 5 and we'll find out whether or not Esther dies. Wouldn't that be a sad ending to the story? And then Esther went into the king and, and that's the end. No, what you're going to find is that he has great favor for her, great love for her, which as I keep saying can only be explained through the providence of God. And as a consequence, everything is going to turn upside down for Haman. Boo. We don't like Haman. All right. Any more questions about that? I hope you see the providence of God in this. Because I hope you see the providence of God in your lives. I hope you see the providence of God in all the things that have happened to you in your history. All of us can look back and say, there's no way I should have lived through that one. And yet I did. I was in college. And I was driving home at like 2.30 in the morning, pouring snow. And the roads had all been plowed and there were snow drifts up along the side of the road. And I had the heater up because it was so cold. And I'm wearing my big furry parka. And let's just say it was comfortable. Just driving 90 to nothing, middle of the night, all by myself. I slept for about three miles. I just dozed off, just. And suddenly woke up, and I looked at the street I was crossing, middle belt, and the last thing I remember is telegraph. And I realized I had just driven through lights and major intersections dead asleep. I lived. God took care of me because God had other plans. It wasn't time for me to go. It's time for me to continue on because apparently I had to come do this. So you can look back on your own lives and you can say, God was with me right there. I just chose that example because it was a real obvious one. I can think of plenty of others. But that was a real obvious one where I just realized, oh my goodness, God 
took me through that one. There's no way I should have lived through that. But you share some with us one day that we never knew about. All the times that he took care of us that we didn't even know. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen that that poster? I'm sorry, I'm just rambling now, but what the hey? Have you ever seen that poster uh, called Footprints in the Sand? Have you ever seen that? And they say there were two sets of footprints. And then suddenly there was one set of footprints. And I said to Jesus, that's where you abandoned me when I was walking by myself. And he said, no, that's the place where I carried you. And everybody oohed and odd over that when it came out. Ooh, ooh, footprints. Ooh, that's good. Ooh. Okay, the thing that's really, really wrong with that idea is that there's absolutely no place where there should be two footprints because God carried you the whole way, the whole time. There should only be one set of footprints because he's the one that took us through our lives. If there was ever two, we'd mess it up. It would be like two walking two different directions, and that would be the end. So, I, saw, I saw a Facebook meme about that the other day. You did? So Jesus well, is talking yeah. and says, the single set of footprints is where I carried you, and those two lines beside her where I dragged you kicking and screaming. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very Calvinistic of them. Yes. So all right, next week we will... See the continuation of the story of Esther and Haman. Can I bring a bag of noisemakers? You may. I'm going to allow that because it's about to get worth it. Yeah. Any questions? I hope you see the providence of God in this story, but I hope more than that that you see the providence of God in your lives. Even though his name is never mentioned. Even though his name is never mentioned, he's always right there right there. All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye! Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.